0: And welcome back to the Tickle the Twine podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Brooke Soman. We're hitting, we've gotten to the quarter point of the NBA season. Most teams have played between 21 and 23 games, so about 25% of the way through the season. And you know what, it's, it's shaped up to be a great NBA season, that's for sure. Um, exciting games every night, uh, exciting teams, exciting rookies. We're going to talk about all of those things um, here today on the podcast. Um, first off and around the league, we're going to go over... Uh, the most recent uh, firing uh, sad to see but David Fisdale was fired by the um, Grizzlies on Monday and then uh, I want to talk about the Trailblazers and the interesting start to the season for them um, in the main event I'm gonna kick around uh, the top uh, top couple uh, destinations for DeAndre Jordan trade possibilities uh, I've, I've looked into this and I'm um, just kind of given the the injuries on The Clippers so far this season, it looks like this might be the time for the Clippers to move Jordan and kind of see what they can get from him, him. and there's definitely a couple teams that would be looking to grab him. And then, close out with just one uh, fast break topic. This week, there's one guy I really want to talk about and highlight in the fast break, and we're going to do that, so buckle up. It's going to be a good one. All right, to get started, um, I'm going to just kind of dive right in with the uh, David Fisdale firing in uh, Memphis. Um, so Fisdale uh, was fired on Monday after eight straight losses, and um, it's kind of, it was controversial right off the bat because um, in the previous night's game against the Nets, Fisdale had benched Mark Gasol during the fourth quarter and kind of the stretch run, and it was a game that it was a close game, so that uh, provided some 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 tension for the team. Uh, Gasol was famous for holding like a fifteen-minute long media availability where multiple times the Memphis. Uh, PR people tried to get him to stop, and he said, "No, no, I want to keep talking." And so that kind of that kind of uh, put a cloud over this firing. But yeah, so uh, Fisdale was Fizdale was let go. Um, the the Grizzlies, uh, as of this point now, are on an 11-game losing streak. Um, much of it has come uh, without Mike Conley, as Conley's missed of uh, uh, nine of the last 11 games, and so the the so, so far this season, the Grizzlies are 7-5 and five with Conley and 0-10 without him, and as they said, that's 7-15 and 15 record, so not good for them, but um, I don't know. Uh, for me personally, I thought the Fisdale firing was a little unwarranted. Uh, he's kind of been praised by coaches and players across the league. Uh, both Dwayne Wade and LeBron James took to Twitter to be like, what's going on here? We need explanations. Why is Fisdale gone? He should still be there. And um, I, I've seen multiple multiple other guys giving him praise specifically, and I'll talk more about him later uh, in the podcast, but Steve Kerr was praising Fisdale heavily um, in his uh, two appearances on the Bill Simmons podcast this week. So definitely kind of a, a weird firing. Um, I, I, I've i watched a lot of the Heat. I've, I've been a Heat fan almost all my life, and uh, so saw a lot of what Fisdale was helping out with Spolster in Miami, and I, I definitely liked his contributions, and I just kind of, well, from what I've heard about him, what I've seen with him, uh, he seems like the kind of guy that You want leading your team uh everyone remembers the take that for data speech he gave during the playoffs last year and that's that's the kind of guy you definitely want behind him so i wanted to explore like what might what factors might have caused his firing and i think one of them for certain is is the losing streak but it's kind of important to talk about that and contextualize that so the way i want to hit with that is so they're without mike conley casal you know he's always been him but he's had some ups and downs the last couple games so well, what about the Grizzlies team dynamic has kind of put them in a position where they've lost a bunch in a row and they just kind of look lost so far that, at this point of the season? And what I find with it is that the Grizzlies roster is, uh, is really uh, heavy, uh, top heavy, um, and it's littered with a bunch of bench and roll guys who are playing probably more than they sh- probably should be playing. Um, the Grizzlies have three guys making over $20 million, uh, Chandler uh, Parsons is at 23, as, Gasol is also at 23, and then Mike Conley's at 28 million each, and so that's a ton. And then when you go after them, the next highest paid player is Jermichael Green at $8 million a year. So, I mean, the Grizzlies have just over that over $70 million committed to three players, and so that kind of limits your options um, for the rest of your team. A lot of their guys are signed with the mid-level exception or on, their own minimum contracts or their own rookie deals and that kind of that's what you see you know a lot of teams that have to fill out their bench like that are teams like you know the Cavs or the Warriors or someone who their top is just kind of dominating and we're just not seeing that from the Grizzlies um, uh, especially because with Conley injured so you know when Conley was in the game they were competing they were up at the top they had one of the hardest hottest starts in the league up there with the Magic and then just since then they've kind of cratered and that's because Conley's been injured I mean when you kind of look up and down the roster um, the first sign I, that I saw that was kind of worrisome is, uh, Dylan Brooks. Um, he was a great, he's a rookie from Oregon. He played great in the NCAA tournament and he's been solid for him so far this year, but I mean, he's averaging 29 minutes a game, which is third most amongst the roster behind Gasol and Conley. He's also got the second most starts on the team beside Gasol. And you know, that's just, that's the test case. It's like, uh, I mean, Dylan Brooks is a good rookie. He's probably not a top five, probably not a top 10, maybe not even top 15 or top 20 rookie in this class, but he's getting almost 30 minutes a game. He's starting most games. He's kind of being relied on heavily, and you just don't want that um, so early in the season um, and so early in his development. Um, I've talked about this before, and rookies are rarely super productive in their first years. They have growing pains. They kind of struggle with a couple things, and uh, that's definitely something that we've seen from Dylan Brooks, and we've just kind of seen it as a whole with the Grizzlies. I mean, they've got a weak roster. You know, One of the Harrison brothers is, is playing consistent minutes and just kind of up and down. Jarrell Martin from LSU plays a lot, kind of, and you see these mismatched pieces of guys that, you know, they might fit um, as role guys in certain positions, but they're being asked to take on a heavy burden. Uh, Tyreek Evans, Jermichael Green, they've both been playing, you know, pretty well, but, like, that, that, that isn't... The core piece, these side pieces are guys that you might want one or two of them to fill in, you know, uh, bench minutes here and there on, on a good team, but you don't want them taking bulk minutes like they are here in Memphis, and that's why they're running into issues, so... I think when you think about that, those factors—not having Mike Conley um, for for the last uh, nine game, nine of the last eleven games—is kind of what makes this firing so weird. You would think that the uh, front office and the general manager and kind of the ownership staff would have gone through the process and been like, "Okay, let's look at it. What what possibly could be going into why there's this firing happened? What's exactly happened with it?" And it kind of looks like they just kind of rushed, maybe. Maybe there's some behind the scenes stuff with Marcus Saul and they just kind of rush to make the star happy, um, which is also weird. because Gasol's, Gasol's older; he's 32. He's going to be on his deal until he's 35, and he's going to be making you know 20 million plus each year as we go along until he's 35. And so you might want to think that Youngko's shown a lot of talent. You might want to commit to, but that doesn't seem to be what what Memphis was leaning towards. There's also been rumblings. About them getting sold, um, some worries about the ownership, you know, raising enough money with local TV deals in Memphis. So there's a lot lot of factors at play, but what really sucks about it then is just kind of a guy like David Fisdale getting fired and being the casualty of a kind of a mixed bottle of, of virulent factors here in Memphis. Uh, I mentioned Steve Kerr earlier. Uh, Kerr was very glowing of Fisdale on the Bill Simmons pod, says he thinks Fisdale is if not a top five, a top ten coach in the league already, um, and that he just kind of picked his first head coaching job bad. Um, Kerr said a lot of the times with your first job, um, that's kind of the way your career goes, and you have to pick a good one to go from there. And so the fact that Fizdale, you know, Fisdale really wanted a chance, and so he just kind of went ahead and took it um, with Memphis. And while that's what you want to get started as a head coach and kind of have a chance to get head coaching jobs in the future, the fit wasn't perfect for Fisdale, and as a result, um, we're we're here now, and he's been fired after a year and and a quarter, and it's just not looking good for him. You know, I hope he'll get another chance in the league. He he definitely should, but we'll see if he does based on how this Memphis stuff went down. Okay, and so, um, but yeah. I would keep an eye on the situation in Memphis. Uh, Marcus Saul could probably be on the way out, whether it be a trade. Um, we've seen situations like that before, where the coach is fired and then the star is traded immediately after the firing happens, too, to just the the management and ownership just kind of wants to clean clean house and kind of reset where they're at. I don't know if that will happen in Memphis. Um, they're kind of cratering. Do they do they tank? What do they do? Um, it'll be a, definitely an an inflection point for them for the rest of the season going forward is with this, what's happened with this firing and then the possible trade of Marcus Gasol. All right, and so I want to move on now to the Portland Trailblazers and just kind of talk about them for a little bit. Trailblazers are, they've been an interesting team. You know, they're not super high up in the standings. They're in in the lower half of the playoff race for the Western Conference, but what's so interesting about them is how they've been successful so far this year as um, most people know when you watch the Trailblazers, you expect them to put a bon- put a bunch of points up. Damian Lillard and C.J. McCollum are two of the premier scoring guards in the league. They both get after it and work as a pretty strong one-two punch, and so. Um, because of them, we've seen what the Blazers have been. Uh, The last couple years, the Blazers have been a top 10-ish offense team and a bottom 10-ish defense team. Last year, they were 11th in offense and 25th in defense. And the year before, they were 6th in offense and 20th in defense. So it's like, oh, so coming into this year, that's kind of what everyone expected out of them. But 23 games in, that's not at all what we're seeing from the Blazers as they're actually... Uh, 22nd in offense at 105 points per 100 possessions, and 2nd in defense at 101.7 points per 100 possessions. I certainly did not see this coming. You know, It came out of nowhere. Um, they traded for uh, Yusuf Nurcic, Nurkic uh, last year, and he's kind of known as an off-and-on energy guy, um, maybe a big that probably doesn't play as much defense because he wants to save his energy for offense, and that has not been the case so far this year. And so that's definitely something... That's been uh, a big surprise across the league, and I kind of want to dive into the Blazers' defense and why why it's so good in this early season. Um, So they have the number one effective field goal percentage defense at 49.1%, pretty good. And their offensive rebound percentage is uh, second at 21.7%. So great numbers there for both of those. And so to break down the effective field goal number even more, because I talked about effective field goal percentage a bunch, on this podcast uh talked about the magic and how their hot shooting start was based on it you know dive into it almost weekly when we go into deep dives on teams because you kind of have to understand you know how is that being how's that number being brought what's contributing to it because it's important to know are they are they a candidate for regression are they overperforming what's happening to to put that number where it is and so for the blazers looks like that number is is driven 100 percent by really solid defense by them um So far this year, the Blazers have, they're allowing the smallest amount of corner threes. Only 5% of opponent shots have been corner threes so far this year. And then the second lowest amount of threes overall at uh, just under 27%, which is great. Um, I just talked about this when I broke down the Celtics um, earlier, a couple weeks ago, and that the big part of the Celtics stopping threes was holding the opposing team from taking as many threes as possible. When you limit three options, that's the best way to play three defense because Three-point shooting is more random than anything else, and defense has less of a factor on it. Um, I cited a study by Ken Palm that talked about this. That's what is most important about three-point defense is holding teams from shooting threes instead of just kind of... I mean, playing really good defense is obviously key, getting a hand up, all that stuff, but at the end of the day... Forcing teams to take more mid-range shots and less threes is kind of the key to three-point defense And that's what the Blazers have been doing so far and it also helps that they're fifth in uh, opponent three-point accuracy Uh, Opponents are only making thirty four point three percent of their threes so far this year So um, we will likely uh, down the road. We'll probably likely see uh, Opponents uh, up their accuracy a little bit as as the season goes on you know uh, a couple teams will come in and shoot a little bit better and whatnot, but the Blazers uh, keeping them shooting at such a low rate will help their defense out and keep it stringent right there up at the top. But it, again, this is super surprising. So another part of their effective field goal percentage defense that I wanted to talk about was uh, their percentage at the rim. Um, so they're holding uh, opponents at the lowest field goal percentage of the rim at the league at just 55.3%. So that's another really good number. Uh, they're making it hard for teams to get easy buckets at the rim. And so uh, this is a number that I, what I, I wanted to kind of dive more into, uh, other than just st- stating the number and kind of talking away through the number. So I pulled up synergy and was kind of going through tons of synergy clips of half court defense, uh, post up defense, t- defense on cuts, all that kind of stuff where, you know, the opponent is going to get near the rim when he takes the shot. And what, what you see, um, when you go through all the, all the clips, what you see on film pretty clearly is that the, uh, what the Blazers are doing well is their bigs and then their wings, who, who defend near the post, are doing an excellent job of contesting just about everything. That goes for Yusuf Nurkic, Alfaro Aminu, Mo Harkless, Noah Vonley, Ed Davis, all these guys I saw on film just being hyperactive, multiple efforts on defense, not giving up. You know, if they contest one way and there's a pass, they're recovering and contesting that guy too. They're doing everything they could to make sure that every single possible layup hook shot, post up, dunk, whatever it is that's about to happen near the rim, they're contesting and making it as hard as possible. And so not to not to leave out the guards, but Damian and CJ were also, there's a couple alley-oops I saw where Damian and CJ were not you know, not fouling, not putting the guy in a position where he would get injured, but at least making the guy think about it, you know, halting their progress, kind of getting jumping up and just getting their hands up there so that whatever the shot attempt is, it's going to be the most <coughs> difficult shot attempt possible for that player in that position. And that's, that's the key to room defense, you know. If you don't have an elite shot blocker, someone like DeAndre Jordan or uh, Rudy Gobert, what you have to do is you have to get into people, contest, force them to take tougher layups, tougher hook shots, um, make them think about layups, make them hesitate a second, make them double clutch, anything like that will go a long way in ensuring that the uh, Defense is kept best and that the field goal percentage at the rim drops down to make up for not having an elite shot blocker. And that's what the Blazers have done. Um, a lot of defense is hustling and effort and that they're consistently putting in every single piece bit of effort that you need to. To uh, keep field goal percentage uh, at the rim down. And so I definitely think um, that's something to look forward going forward. Going uh, forward. You know, that's something I had noticed watching their games, but I really needed to deep dive into it on film. And this goes, goes back to the whole eye test first data thing. And I try to, I try to use both, uh, when doing some analysis here and that. And so when I was like, I saw that number, I was like, okay, that doesn't really make it, that doesn't kind of make a ton of sense just because of, you know, you don't think of Nurkic and Ed Davis and Vonley as these, <coughs> and Myers Leonard even, as these huge, uh, shot blockers who just keep guys from making easy layups. So there had to be some part of it And you know, they do have a lot of length because for uh Amino and Moharkas are both taller uh, Same with Novanle. They're all tall. They're all lanky They, they can all recover and are, are pretty pretty laterally quick and that's what you're getting here The lateral quickness and the hustle and the length allows them to contest everything and that's what they're doing They're not taking plays off. They're not taking a ton of possessions off They're getting after it every single possession because they know that their defense is reliant on them contesting and making sure and helping the helper and doing what they have to do so that no easy layups happen. Okay, and so I'm going to take a... I'm going to move on now. Uh, Take a short break to the social media moment of the week. Um, this one's hard. Um, at this point, this I could almost rebrand this as the Joel Embiid moment of the week or the troll of the week. Um, Embiid and Drummond went back and forth uh, this week, talking to each other, uh, uh, getting ready for the game. Uh, last night, Embiid and the Sixers ended up winning and holding off a, uh, a, a furious run by the Pistons in the fourth quarter. And it was uh, highlighted, at least for me, by... Uh, Drummond fouling out on a kind of kind of ditzy foul. He kind of tripped Joel. Joel might have stumbled on his own I probably wouldn't have called it but the ref called it foul Drummond out And as Drummond started to walk off the court and beat started pointing and yelling up to Drummond about going out the exit doors uh, Because he was done so pretty funny stuff there Uh, They've been trash talking back and forth and I kind of wanted to take this time to also highlight um with the the one piece of trash talk that Drummond made that I just I think is kind of kind of lazy analysis at this point is uh, Drummond said you know uh, when you can't play back and back back to backs that kind of uh, lowers your value as a player talking about Embiid and while it's a perfectly valid <laughs> criticism Embiid's health is a worry uh, I definitely worry about it every time he goes down for a fall because we want to see him play he's very very fun to watch I think if your only criticism of Embiid so far this season can be well he doesn't play back to backs. So that makes him miss games. He's only missed a couple games so far this year. He's only missed three or four games this year. So like harping on that as a way to to take him down a peg or worry him is, is is lazy. It's just you're not actually making analysis. You're just taking the one thing you know that he's not doing right now because of his health, being like, well, that's why he's not an elite player. Well, that's 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 just not true. His play on the his play on the court backs up how elite he's been on year. And yeah, he's missed a couple of games on back to backs out of precaution, so he doesn't get injured. That's 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 just I I just do not agree with the whole line that because he's missed back to backs, it kind of takes away from him. When he's not been on the court, he's been the best best center in the league so far this year. I don't I don't think you can. There's much of an argument to be made there as to uh, which one you know maybe DeMarcus Cousins. I think him and DeMarcus Cousins are probably neck and neck, but he, he's either been the best or second best center in the league all all year and. He's missed, what, three games, four games? So the, the, the back-to-back, lazy, um, I think if you're looking at someone and that's, that's, that's the argument they want to make about Joel, it should be like, okay, well, do you have an actual argument for me? Um, Joel's proved to be unguardable. Um, anytime anyone can't guard him, they just start fouling him. Drummond did a lot of it the other night. Um, in the game against the Cavs, the Gavs, the Cavs did that as well, but the Cavs are famous for that. Uh, and their furious comeback against the Knicks. LeBron's way of defending Kristaps Porzingis was to just kind of consistently hack him and toe the line with the refs, and he, that's that's kind of what he got backed up by, but say, same thing with Embiid. Embiid proves to be unguardable, and then, so these guys get mad, they foul out, they foul him a ton, and then they come at him on social media, them, ana- analysis, who like the team, anyone, come at Embiid about, oh, well, you can't play back-to-back, so you're not that good, just, just poor, and... Um, one more thing I want to highlight about Embiid uh, before I hop off uh, and move on to the main event topic this week is just he was on uh, J.J. Reddick's new podcast, which is being hosted on The Ringer. Um, definitely worth uh, listening to. Uh, J.J. Reddick has done some podcasts through Yahoo and The Vertical in the past, and they're always really good. It's great to get a current player's insight. But his, I loved um, the podcast with Embiid just because Embiid is so candid. He's fun to talk to. And the one thing it, it did for me with Embiid is it made, made me worry about uh, how the league's going to fare as Embiid continues to improve. Because the way Embiid talks, uh, he he had a comment about how he doesn't really work on the sky hook or the Olajuwon dream shake. He just kind of, you know, tries them in games to see what happens. And so when, when they're successful, he's almost as surprised as we are. Um, that they happened, which is, I mean, for me, that's kind of scary because that means this guy's nowhere near his ceiling. Um, it's a good reminder that he's only been playing basketball since he was like 14. He missed two of those years because of injury. Um, this is a guy who, and he talks about it very candidly. His junior year in high school, he had to play on the JV team because he hadn't played enough basketball yet. And this guy's crazy. Um, I hope to see him stay healthy because I don't, I don't know where his ceiling is, um, and I don't, I don't know if there is a ceiling for him at this point. It's his ceiling is Hall of Famer for sure if he stays healthy, and that that's something that he's looked to be doing so far this year, so we hope it continues. All right, um, I'm going to kind of move, transition on to the main event this week. and uh, and going to kind of talk about uh, trade destinations for DeAndre Jordan um, with Blake Griffin getting injured the other night, um, and he's going to be out a couple months. The Clippers are kind of in free fall now. Uh, Griffin, Blake Griffin's injured. Patrick Pat Beverly's injured and Luke Alinari's injured. It's three of their starters injured, including their best player and their two top pickups from the offseason. Uh, and their, their team just is, it seems to be in disarray. They're kind of in free fall, kind of like the Grizzlies are. And so with that in mind, we know uh, Doc Rivers has kind of got a short, short temper when it comes to staying on for rebuilds. He's he's shown aversion to that in the past. That's why he left Boston and came to the Clippers in the first place. So he will probably move on it looks like so with that with that thought do the clippers look to move Deandre Jordan uh, Jordan's uh, on a long, uh, still on a contract, um, and they could probably get significant value for him. If, and if it looks like they're going to have to transition to rebuilding, they can definitely get, probably get some picks from a couple teams. And so I, I kind of wanted to talk about a couple of my favorite trade scenarios for DeAndre. I think if the Clippers are going to move him and a contender is going to look to snatch him, I think the only way a contender is going to be able to snatch him if, if there is an East contender. Uh, it just doesn't make sense for the Clippers to move him to someone in the West who's contending. And it's probably going to be an East team with some some assets in some way, some youth. Um, so the, the three teams I, I like in the East to to take a shot at them are Milwaukee, Washington, um, the Washington Wizards, and Cleveland. Uh, so Milwaukee's obviously having some defensive issues. Um, they're having some issues at the center position. They did they dealt Greg Monroe to get Eric Bledsoe, which is a huge huge upgrade for them. But you know John Henson is inconsistent. Thon Maker is still coming along as a rookie. And defensively, they're just not where they need to be, especially at the center position. So I could definitely see Milwaukee taking a swing at picking up DeAndre Jordan. I think he'd be a huge get for them. Um, He'd he'd shore up their defense and add to their athleticism. Uh, We could see Lob City East with Bledsoe throwing lobs to him and Giannis consistently. And that would give them a starting five of Bledsoe, Middleton, Giannis, um, and and. When Jabari comes back, Jabari, and then DeAndre, and if that—that's the lineup they have going into the last month of the season and going into the playoffs, then uh, that's a pretty strong lineup for them. Um, I would, I think, uh, looking at that lineup, they could probably challenge uh, Cleveland and Boston and Washington for the East and could make a run for the finals. Just because that—I mean, Giannis has been otherworldly. He's a top five player, and the guys around him are c- consistent and can match up pretty well with anyone else in the East. So. What would it take from Milwaukee to get him? Um, probably a package that centers around like John Henson and Malcolm Brogdon with some salary filler, whether it be Merz or um, In there is probably what they would need to do to get him. Um, they might have to throw a pick in um, but, uh, I, I have a feeling Milwaukee's not going to want to part with Brogdon. Um, they didn't want to get rid of Brogdon to get Bledsoe, and they worked around that, so I think that if they want to get DeAndre, they're going to try and work around giving up Brogdon and probably work to get, not give up Thon Maker too. So I could also see him trying, a, uh, John Henson, Della Vidova, and maybe Rashad Vaughn, um, package. And they would definitely have to throw in a pick on that one. That way he can just... Uh, That way they send back a center. Uh, Clippers are kind of in need of a point guard with Theodosic and Beverly injured, and Delhi can fill in as a backup point guard for them, and that'll clear up Milwaukee's uh, bench so that it's Brogdon and Bledsoe as the two point guards, and there's no need to play Delhi. And uh, I think that would be a a solid trade Um, for the Clippers' side. That's that's hard, you know. You're, you're looking to get value back, and it's kind of what they determine value is. Um, that's why I think a pick would have to be in. They're probably going to want some future assets in some way, and if they can't get Brogdon, they're going to definitely want a pick from Milwaukee. Um, but I, I think they would do it. Um, DeAndre is probably not going to. He's probably getting up unhappy there. He doesn't want to continue to play for back team. He's a huge salary number, and if the Clippers are going to be bad, um, they don't want a ton of huge salary because they want to be able to make splashes in free agency. Um, so I definitely think, uh, they, they might look to make that deal with Milwaukee, um, because then they can move, they can go to move other guys around if they need to. Um, so then the next destination, uh, I could see, uh, for DeAndre would be the, the Wizards, uh, out in Washington. And so that, that, that's, that's a pretty set package. Probably the, what's Washington's going to offer. They're probably going to offer Gortat, Jason Smith, uh, some kind of pr- a pick, whether there probably be some protections on it, but some kind of first, first round pick whether uh, for this season or in the future. And then uh, the Clippers will probably ask for Oubre. And then, so that's that's the decision point for Washington. Are they willing to deal such a young guy for DeAndre Jordan? Do they think DeAndre can put them over the top? Um, Do they try and work it so maybe they don't send Oubre? They say someone sends someone like Satoransky or someone who Satoransky hasn't been great in the league, but has shown flashes that he could be a a solid player, but nothing like the potential of Oubre. So that's probably a hard sell for the Clippers. But for Washington, they kind of have to think about how close do they think they are. Um, John Wall's injured right now. And do they think getting DeAndre instead of maybe getting Boogie, because we all know uh, DeMarcus Cousins is a big target for Washington to reunite him and Wall. Um, do the Wizards think that DeAndre, as a kind of a consolation prize, can still lead them into contention and maybe let them fight for for NBA Finals bid with uh, Washington or with Boston and Cleveland? I'm not sure. Um, I think DeAndre would be a perfect partner for John Wall uh, for pick and rolls and to run run in transition. You know, he's much more athletic than Gortat. He plays better, plays better defense than Gortat. Um, this also will let uh, Washington offload Jason Smith, who's just uh, kind of salary that's just not, they're not working for him right now. Uh, they kind of have a girth of centers that aren't great and are just kind of do, making it, you know, between Jason Smith, Jan Mihiny, and Marchingo, Hot. Um, the Washington definitely needs to upgrade, um, somewhere, and that that's the most logical place for them to upgrade. So we'll see, um, I think that would make Washington super exciting, and I'd love to see that happen. Um, it would give them this. They would just add to the John Wall and Beal show and give them a guy who's just going to eat rebounds for them and play defense behind them if they you know need if they take a defensive possession off, which we've seen John Wall uh, tend to do just because of how hard he plays and he tires out pretty quick. And then uh, the last Eastern Conference trade destination I could see for DeAndre would be Cleveland. Um, we've we've heard Cleveland's name attached DeAndre attached to trade talks with Gasol. I'm kind of looking to upgrade uh, down there. Uh, Kevin Love has been great this year playing kind of at the five with LeBron at the four um, in small lineups, but they definitely need to uh, upgrade their defense and DeAndre can certainly do that. Um, the Cavs are currently on their 11th game win streak and they fixed their defense, but is it sustainable? Um, what's going to happen when you bring Isaiah back and, you know, he's not very good defensively? So, Um, Despite the fact that DeMond Shumpert just got injured and Tristan Thompson's also injured, injured, maybe Cleveland can uh, negotiate a deal where they send those two guys in the 2018 pick over to the Clippers. Um, The the only issue I have here with Cleveland is a lot of Cleveland's assets are kind of, I kind of asterisk them with how have they been when they're not playing with LeBron. We've never seen Tristan Thompson play super productively without LeBron. And so how can he fare on a team where he doesn't have LeBron, you know, to help him out where he's not supporting LeBron in some way? That's a, that's a solid question. Iman Shepard wasn't great in New York before he got to Cleveland uh, to play alongside LeBron, and he he isn't always an A-plus uh, player. So what would he be like without LeBron? And th- those are the questions that the Clippers are definitely going to have to ask about any deal with Cleveland. Um, I, I don't think they make this deal unless they're getting the Nets pick. Um, the Nets have been a surprise this year, but I still think their pick is significantly more valuable. Obviously, than the Cavs pick because the Cavs pick will fall, like, probably fall in the late twenties, and at this point, the Nets pick is going to fall in the lottery somewhere, um, which is much preferred for the Clippers because then you know that puts them in a situation where maybe they have two lottery picks, and this draft looks to be loaded. So I could definitely see them going that direction rather than um, going the way of uh, asking for the Cleveland pick. They're probably going to demand the Nets pick to make this deal work, and I I, I have to say that's what you got to do in this situation. I don't think as the Clippers dealing with Cleveland, you can, um, you're going to get enough value back if you don't ask for the Nets pick. And then the last person I want, the last team I wanted to hit on um, for, the, for the possible locations for DeAndre is the Mavs. Um, their name has been attached to DeAndre in the past. Obviously, uh, it looked like he was going to sign with them until he was kind of held hostage by his Clipper t- teammates a couple summers ago. And so that's an important note, but um, I think the Nat, the Mavs, if they put together a package uh, kind of with Nerlens, Wes Matthews, Yogi Ferrell, and a pick of some kind, they could probably pry DeAndre away. Um, Nerlens is in the doghouse in uh, Dallas and just not getting playing time, and so giving letting him move somewhere else to maybe get a chance to play, and he would certainly play in, in LA would be great for him. And then that, you know, Yogi Ferrell and Wes Matthews can kind of shore up the guard rotation and give uh, the Clippers some scores that they just don't have right now with uh, Gallinari and Blake Griffin out. So that's definitely worth, worth looking at. There's a couple other places that might be uh, able to fit. Phoenix Suns are basically a constant uh, in every trade conversation currently. And so you've got to keep their name um, on your tongue when it comes to anybody who's looking to get dealt. But... I, I would, I would kind of lead to one of these Eastern Conference teams uh, kind of evaluating where they are and making the swing for DeAndre, especially if he's on the block. Um, as the Western Conference goes, I don't think many of the top contenders uh, are going to make a swing for it. Um, maybe San Antonio, but there's so much about their system that I don't think they go after a guy like uh, DeAndre. I think if San Antonio were to deal, they would probably look to get Marcus Gasol rather than anybody else. But it's worth keeping your eye on. The trade market's probably going to get fast and furious and, you know, Playing around with uh, the NBA trade machine on ESPN is super fun, and that's definitely what I did to get some of these scenarios going and just kind of spitball, you know, what teams probably the most natural fit, which teams have the best options, and to go from there. And to close out uh, this week, I'm going to talk uh, just a quick fast break, and kind of the one name I want to highlight is Donovan Mitchell, uh, the rookie for the Jazz. I've, talk, I've talked about the rookies in just about every single episode. That's because it's been such a good rookie class. It's um, It's super exciting. There are still games, still games that I will watch solely to see the rookies play, um, especially if it's a rookie that I haven't seen um, play a, a ton yet. Um, someone like Donovan Mitchell, um, I'd love to watch the Jazz just to see him play. And you know, uh, this week he became the first rookie since Blake Griffin to score forty points in a game during that rookie season, and he's kind of he's kind of coming into his own as a scorer for the Jazz. Um, obviously, with Hayward leaving in the off season. Um, and Rodney Hood kind of being up and down for them. They needed someone to step up as a scorer, and so far it's been uh, Mitchell's kind of done what he's had to do to do that. And kind of surprising for me, I did not did not expect Mitchell to kind of grow into his own as quickly as he has. And so, but it's good. He's good. He's a good player to watch. Um, it's nice to see the scoring. And obviously, any rookie is a good rookie. It's important to note that uh, some of the advanced stats, especially like box score plus minus, don't really like Mitchell, and so he still has some. Uh, some drawbacks, and he's still kind of figuring it out and adjusting to the game, and I think it's it's kind of important to, when you talk about Donovan Mitchell and how exciting it is, I know a lot of fans kind of be like, oh, Donovan Mitchell's already better than X player, and, and one of the names always attached to that is Devin Booker, and I think that might be a little bit of a jump to a conclusion, uh, too early to make, but um, a lot of people are talking about it, so it's, 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 it's a conversation worth having, I think we're kind of jumping the gun there, um, but Diamond Mitchell certainly exciting, certainly someone to watch as the season goes on, and to keep in keep his name in your mouth and your head uh, when you're talking NBA this season. So that's going to wrap up the uh, Tickle the Twine podcast this week. It's a, it's a little bit shorter one this week. Uh, there's a lot going on, but um, I not not a lot, not a ton of stuff I wanted to drill down into. Um, it's kind of harder to pick stuff out um, now that the season's going. You know, we don't have teams surging and streaking as much. Um, I didn't really. I didn't. I. I think the Cavs get talked about too much, so I didn't want to talk about them too much here, too, to just kind of give them too much airtime. And so I think it's fun to spread around and maybe talk about some of the lesser teams and kind of and then do more fun things like the you know last last week I talked about the forty point score study, um, and then this week I wanted to talk trades with DeAndre Jordan. Just saw his name come up. You know. You know. Liven up the podcast with a little bit of fun spitballing rather than just hard numbers all day, every day. So uh, thanks again for listening. Check us out at Tickle the Twine uh, three on twitter.com. And then uh, a podcast is on in your SoundCloud and iTunes and tune in feeds. Uh, I'll talk to you guys next week.